0: You're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
1: My name is Alex Theer, and welcome to ODI. Uh, I'm really thrilled to see that we have a packed house tonight. Um, And you put revolution in the title, and I guess people show up. Um, uh, But it is remarkable to reflect on what a fascinating revolution uh, uh, the whole world has undergone uh, since many of us began our careers. Uh, Many of the things that you'll be talking about tonight... Um, uh, sounded more appropriate uh, in sci-fi films or on Star Trek uh, than uh, the actual revolutions that are happening all across the world today, and particularly in the developing world. Um, And so I think we're going to talk about some of those exciting things tonight. I'm just here to say welcome. Um, Thanks to uh, Simon Gill and his team for putting this fantastic event together. Um, And I just want to very briefly um, introduce uh, uh, both our uh, chair... Um, and our lead off speaker. Um, The first thing that I was going to say though is that, you know, the change that has been happening around the world, welcome, uh, has been uh, so uh, dramatic and it feels like we are all constantly just trying to keep up with it uh, in our own pockets, let alone in the work that we do around the world. And you have this simultaneous uh, exciting and challenging thing that's going on. The exciting thing is that as digital technology spreads ever faster, ever wider, than before, um, it opens up enormous opportunities and it has broken down barriers. Uh, I'm sure one of the places you'll talk about today is Kenya. um, And we've all been amazed at the rapidity with which Kenya has adopted things like mobile money um, and shown uh, far more, uh, quote unquote, advanced and wealthy countries, how those things can be done quickly and some of the advantages actually to not having some of the embedded infrastructure and all of that that allows those things to happen. And that's enormously exciting. Um, At the same time, to be realistic about it, there is a a deep and and in some ways deepening digital divide in the world, um, which makes some of the promise and excitement of all of these tools um, that much more um, challenging when you think about how much work needs to be done to really fulfill uh, their promise. Um, And so I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Um, I'm just going to briefly introduce uh, but not welcome up uh, Sumeya Keynes, Um, who is the economist uh, and economics and trade correspondent. Uh, Welcome, Sumeya. Um, And she also used to work at the Institute of Fiscal Studies, but we won't hold that against her. You're welcome here at ODI. Um, uh, But I'm going to introduce our first speaker tonight, uh, who is Sanjeev Gupta. Uh, you'll see his name at the top of the list on this exciting new book. Uh, Sanjeev is the Deputy deputy Director uh, of the Fiscal Affairs Department at the IMF. Um, if you look into the book, though, he's got uh, many, many important things uh, under his belt, both in terms of the work of the IMF, the number of missions that he's led around the world, uh, but also being a fundamental um somewhat frightening contributor to the debate uh, with uh, over 150 papers and uh, some 20, some uh, co-edited volumes or edited volumes or books that he himself has produced. So it's a real pleasure uh, to have you here tonight, Sanjeev, and I'm gonna hand it over to you now. Please join me in welcoming him. I I, I... Are you mic yeah. So uh, can, can you,
2: okay. Uh, Thank you, Alex, for the introduction. And uh, thank you, Simon, for organizing this event. Um, I will take about uh, 12, 13 minutes to uh, lay out some of the messages that are emanating from the book. Uh, Before I go any further, I would like to take this opportunity to thank uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for their support uh, of our project on digitalization and public finances. We believe that this is an important topic for us in the TA that we technical assistance that we provide to our member countries, and already we have started to implement some of these uh, areas, uh, some of the advice um, which I will talk about in uh, in a few minutes. We organised an event uh, in uh, uh, in uh, Senegal last year, and then in uh, uh, in Uganda uh, in September of this year. And in both these uh, events, we try to see how some of the ideas that came out of the book can be used in helping these countries. <clears throat> the, the basic premise is that um, digital technology can have fundamental uh, implications for the, the way we uh, design and implement fiscal policy. <clears throat> so let me uh, look at the implications of, uh, uh, what are the implications of uh, of, uh, new technologies on fiscal policy with greater storage capacity and improved computing power, we can uh, now uh, collect a lot more information than before. And indeed, uh, the governments or fiscal authorities are collecting a whole lot of information on the private sector. Um, In in fact, if you look at uh, the cases of Australia and, and the UK, they have access to real-time information on on, um, payroll data. And in uh, Brazil and Russia, they have real-time information on firm level data, firm sales. So, um, And then um, the tax authorities are able to process this information with greater ease. With lot more ease, they are processing this. In the UK, they are able to construct a profile of individual's income to be able to see how realistic the tax returns are. Um, And in the governments, because they are using a lot of these digital platforms, um, the tax authorities now have access to all this information which is sitting on different government platforms. So so what does this mean for fiscal policy? So as we see it, uh, one of the messages that we want to convey here in this book is that we can do the same things that we are doing, but do them better. And then there are some things that we can innovate, and I'm going to talk about that as well. But all this comes with some new and more intensified fiscal policy challenges, and I'm going to deal with each one of these topics as I move along. So let's uh, start with... Uh, um, the peer-to-peer economy that has come up recently, where uh, digital platform intermediates transactions between sellers and uh, and buyers of different uh, services and products. Uh, Here one can think of the digital platform providing information to the tax authorities uh, on the users uh, of the platform, such as in... uh, uh, such as uh, uh, in uh, Estonia, Uber does that. Um, or it could be that um, the platform acts at, uh, as an agent uh, of uh, withholding uh, taxes on behalf of the government. Uh, f- this is what Airbnb is doing for hotel taxes in a number of countries. Of course, this is not appreciated all the time by the private sector, but this is no different from what banks are doing uh, in in for, for different financial transactions. Um, then of course, with this digital information, there is there is a lot more ease in having cross-border exchange of information to detect uh, uh, evasion and avoidance of taxes. Um, and then we have um, the uh, electronic filing of taxes which has reduced the burden of uh, uh, compliance on the taxpayers, and also the cost of administering taxes for the tax administrations. And with the pre-population of tax returns uh, from uh, third party sources, it can further reduce uh, the burden of compliance on the taxpayers. And uh, the only thing the taxpayer has to do is to um, verify the information that is being Put in the in the tax return. Um, then, of course, uh, the uh, electronic invoicing uh, can help improve the compliance in the case of indirect taxes. Um, and then, uh, Alex talked about the use of mobile payments in Kenya. Uh, m is being used to pay taxes and 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 to uh, for government services through the mobile uh, technology. Um, And here I'll take a pause and give some examples of what we found in Senegal and in uh, in Uganda. For example, um, by linking the the text, the the register of uh, of, uh, business people uh, with the Uganda Revenue Authority, you can Im- Im- immediately improve the taxpayer's register. At present, they are not linked. Similarly, the, uh, the budget systems, uh, more technically the so-called IFMES system produces uh, data on the payments that are being made for the implementation of capital projects. That data is not immediately available to the revenue authority. By linking the two, you can improve the taxpayer system. So, so these are the examples that we found. And this is, these are some things that are inserted in the medium-term revenue strategy for the Uganda that we discussed with authorities last September. <clears throat> in the case of um, both Uganda and, and Senegal, there is, we found that there is scope for using mobile uh, phones for paying taxes. Um, and that project is being implemented in, uh, in, uh, in Senegal. <laughs> Sub-Saharan Africa has roughly 600 million mobile phones. The number is supposed to go up to a billion in the next couple of years. So there is scope for using this technology for uh, broadening the taxpayers and easing the compliance burden on, on the taxpayers. Um, then um, the use of biometric identification and digital payment systems, has cut uh, bureaucratic inefficiencies and improved targeting and delivery of benefits um, in a number of countries. And uh, it has also generated some fiscal savings. Um, In the case of India, the the Aadhaar is being used for uh, uh, promoting uh, fiscal uh, Sorry. uh, in, uh, financial inclusion, and, and um, also for targeting benefits to people. And it has also generated some fiscal savings. Aadhaar um, so is covering roughly 1.2 billion people, and, um, and now, in the last couple of months, they have also announced linking uh, the tax returns to Aadhaar number and also require, require the bank holders to submit Adhar, uh, accounts so that the bank accounts are linked. So there are a lot of different aspects which are being linked to this biometric uh, identification system. Um, then there is the availability of real-time fiscal data. Number of countries are producing on a daily basis data on value-added taxes and on cash balances. Now, that data can be used for um, monitoring economic activity and better forecasting and preparate, preparation of the budget. So, so there is an, in fact, US and Brazil make this data publicly available. So there is scope for uh, going much further with this kind of information. <clears throat> um, so what are the, f- the second point that I wanted to discuss? Are Innovation, policy design. So what are those innovations? In policy design that are possible, um, so let's look at uh, the uh, tax design. So one could think of designing a tax system which is not based on annual incomes but on the basis of lifetime income and lifetime wealth. Um, similarly, one could think of coming up with a with a um, individualized value-added tax uh, which is. Uh, based on lifetime consumption, and, and so that conceptually can be a lot more progressive than what we have now. <clears throat> and if we are able to target subsidies better, um, then some of the blunt instruments that we use to, uh, uh, to, to protect the poor, such as uh, uh, a zero rating VAT on necessities, will not be needed. But with all these changes that we are talking about comes new challenges and one of course is when the government is collecting whole lot of data uh, on the private sector there is issue of privacy. In number of countries uh, these frameworks have not been developed very well or haven't come up yet. Um, And then with the recent episodes of uh, hacking of information from private or government uh, sectors, there's the issue of cyber security. The, uh, the society can benefit from digital technology only and only if they are part of this digital world. And that may not be the case. Um, finally, you could have some impediments on, on the institutional side. On the human side, on the political side, which can impede the adoption of this new technology, for example, um, we have the experience of financial management systems uh, which were implemented in a number of countries, number of developing countries, which were not very successful. So that is, again an aspect which one should bear in mind. <coughs> so two more challenges. Um, uh, uh, We know that number of multinationals are selling in uh, multiple jurisdictions without any physical presence in those countries. So the issue arises, how should you tax them? Uh, Should they be, be taxed on the basis of where the consumers are or where the shareholders are, irrespective of where their physical presence is? And then there is the issue of how should fiscal policy deal with automation Um, with the introduction of robots, with the capital intensity in the usage uh, of, let's say, robots in in some of the industries. uh, We are told that mining now may not be that labor intensive anymore. Does it mean that you need to tax the system differently? And then there is a the issue of um, having some kind of a um, <clears throat> this benefit, uh, universal benefit, basic universal basic benefit which goes to everybody uh, if people are getting unemployed as a result of automation. So last slide. Um, even if digitalization is able to deal with some of the issues that we talked about it still cannot uh, deal with the fundamental limits, uh, fundamental issues of uh, fiscal policy. Um, for example, um, we, may, we may not be able to uh, target the benefits uh, to, the, uh, to the poor because the rich do not like it or the middle class is it. So you cannot use the digital technology for targeting. Similarly, you may find uh, uh, corrupt bureaucrats bypassing uh, the digital systems uh, and not uh, making use of this technology. Uh, And finally, you could have a, um, uh, you know, uh, sorry. uh, Then we have the issue of uh, the in a in a ideal sort of uh, tax and transfer system you want to make sure that um, the things are, are are not based on on one's uh, individual income but on the initial uh, characteristics and circumstances and they are not based on uh, on on some other extraneous circumstances and the digitalization will not allow us to take care of that so so that uh, brings us to my final comment, uh, uh, so where do we go from here? Um, uh, digitalization, the technology is changing very rapidly, and in some uh, uh, years, some of the recommendations that we have in the book may appear a bit naive. Uh, but the countries have the choices. They can either make incremental changes or leapfrog, as Estonia has done. Uh, but then uh, what the book does is to provide a perspective on how the countries can uh, navigate a path to the through the digital world. Thank you very much.
0: And that brings us uh, from the first part of this event to the second. Um, so this next bit is going to take place in two parts. So we're going to have um, two two discussions from the panel, and then we're going to have two sections of the Q&A. And I'm going to try and be really, really ruthless about maintaining the dividing lines between those two segments. So in the first, I'm probably going to fail, but I'll, I'll, I'll try, I'll say that I'm gonna try now. Uh, in the first, um, I would like us to talk at a, at a slightly higher level about you know the opportunities and challenges um, posed by digitalization, public finance, and so, so talk about, you know, m- more the theory or kind of big picture stuff. And in the second one, we're going to try and get a bit more specific um, and, and talk about specific tax issues um, and, and also the role for international organizations. Um, so kind of diving into the, the specific examples. Hopefully my panel is aware and keen. Uh, and so now uh, all that remains is for me to introduce them. Um, so, from my far left, we have Patrick Dunleavy, who is a, a professor at the London School of Economics, um, and he's been uh, well, he's the co-director of the Democratic Audit and chair of the LSE Public Policy Group. So, so has been doing lots of work on this issue, been thinking a lot about it. And um, then we have Claire Franklin, who is a partner at um, Ernst and Young. So she works with the the tax functions of corporates um, as they embrace digital tax. Tax topic, so she's really engaged from that that corporate perspective. Um, next, we have Simon Gill to my immediate left, um, and he's the head of program here at the public the public finance and institutions at the ODI. Um, so you know, IFS ODI rivalry will be put aside for the for the remainder of this session. Um, to my right, we have Michael Keane, who's the deputy director of the fiscal affairs. No, we don't. That's Martin. <laughs> Okay, um, okay. Well, here's Martin. Um, Martin is the economic advisor to the prime minister, to the prime minister of um, the Estonia, the Estonian government, um, and he really focuses on the big issues, the macro issues. So we'll be we'll be talking um, from that perspective as well. And then finally, we have Michael Keane uh, the real one this time. Um, and There's only one. <laughs> um, M- Michael is uh, the deputy director of the Fiscal Affairs Department of the IMF, um, and has a vast experience of all issues, tax. Um, wonderful, and and a general plea to both panelists, but also audience members, to keep your questions and answers punchy, um, just so we can get as much in as possible. And again, I'll be brutal if you're um, too boring. Um, Wonderful. Okay. So first question for Patrick. Um, So you've been studying digitalization for some time. How do you see it as really having an impact? How do you see it shaping the public sector?
3: Well, uh, the public sector is always 10 to 15 years behind the private sector. So that happens in advanced industrial countries and it certainly happens in developing countries. And that's a problem because, you know, when you're dealing with tax and regulation, you're basically involved in an arms race. And so if you're 10 to 15 years behind, you're not usually winning the arms race. So I, whenever I hear a presentation like the one we just heard, my tendency is always to say, don't believe the hype. Particularly don't believe the hype when people mention things like Estonia, which is a tiny little country, 1.5 million people, has an army of 5,000, and so on. In large-scale contexts, in large-scale countries, in big-scale operations, digital change is incredibly hard to do and usually uh, delivers mixed results. Not to say that you can't produce some things that are improvements, but I would always be incredibly sceptical. I've just finished doing... A series of interviews with every head of department in across the Australian Commonwealth government, and we wrote this up, and it's called "Australian Administrative Elites on the Cusp of Digital Change." Now, if that's true in Australia, I would think we're a, a long way off really high-powered digital change in many developing
0: countries. So, a quick follow-up question: If it's so. Easy in Estonia and so hard in other larger countries. Why is that? Is it just the size and the it's complexity scale, or is it?
3: Scale is incredibly important in digital. You know, you can do lots of things with 1.5 million people that you can't do with 60 million and even more if you've got 300 million or 120 million like Indonesia or somewhere. India is the, the one exception. We have the Indian ID card, the 1.2 billion mega project that should never have worked but somehow it seems to have worked uh, a little bit. Uh, But I think the jury's still out on on that. So I, I just would say, be a little bit cautious. If you look at the advanced industrial countries, they haven't done digital government terribly well. They're still not doing it terribly well. There's a huge way to go.
0: Wonderful, Claire. Can you be a little bit more optimistic? What are the opportunities uh, that digitalization prevents for governments seeking to tax digital activity?
4: Yes. Um, obviously, um, digitalisation really does bring a real change to to the governments and also to the to the private sector. So the the corporates operating within the sort of the new normal. Um, when we think about, uh, say, tax and the digitalization of tax and what does that mean, um, there's sort of two areas that we think about. First of all, um, you know, what's changed within the provision of services or goods from the, the private sector that has a digital impact? So, for example... As mentioned just just earlier, we, we have now corporates who are able to have a real access to a global market overnight. You know, they can just sell online. They can be open to any market that they wish to be in without having physical presence anywhere. So much quicker for them to get to market and to be able to, you know, direct where they're, they're, they're leveraging their business. Um, that also brings with it you know, the sort of implications of how do they produce things digitally. So, for example, if you think about um, 3D printing, where are you making some of the products? How are the services being uh, sort of put together, which are then sold? Um, So really digital impacts to the business and the supply chain. So that's one side of the, the discussion. And the other is then where do you think about taxing this? You know, where is the profit arising? Where are the costs being deducted from? How do you allocate that? So from a administration of tax perspective that, that brings a challenge, um, but it also brings an opportunity to really think about how the policy around taxing these items can be can be thought about and, and changed.
0: Great okay. um, Simon, can we talk can you, can you talk for a while about the, the opportunities that you see for making better use of technology? In, in, say, financial
5: management. Um. Let me just give it an example. Actually, I was just picking up what Patrick was saying. I have this strange life that I spend half my week in Scotland and half my week in London. Um, if you are in, the, go to a health centre in Scotland or to a hospital in Scotland, because you have a unique health service number, the... Facilities are joined up, so if I go into a hospital, they pick up my number immediately. It's a bit Patrick's point about scale. You cannot do that in England, but you can do it in Scotland. Scotland's only five million, but there are opportunities there in terms of healthcare. It's it, it's, it is an issue of scale. Um, I think the other example I wanted to give. I was just thinking in terms of you know financial management. I was working in Lesotho in 1990. Um, it's not a digitalization thing, but it's, it was prompted by um, Sanjeev's comment about using the private sector like Airbnb to collect taxes for you. And in Lesotho in 1990, the oil companies were collecting revenues on behalf of the government in terms of the, the collection of, of tax on that. And I think there's lots of scope in that kind of area to get the health service... Sorry to get the private sector to work for the government. And I just just Patrick just on your point about being behind the private sector. I think one of the lessons I took out of the book reading it quickly is that Actually, in developing countries, which I may be picking up your point, I think the fact that the public sector is behind the private sector is quite useful. I think the steps that M-PESA has made in places like East Africa, the fact that the public sector can piggyback on some of those developments is a good thing. And I don't think the public sector, particularly in developing countries, should be at the forefront, but they should be maybe a couple of steps behind. I think that's good and useful and is the right way.
0: Martin. <clears throat> From your experience in Estonia how do you see the opportunities of this this trend
6: well just let me let me respond to to, to what was said uh, about the big countries versus uh, uh, large uh, small countries uh, I fully agree that big uh, ships are sometimes more difficult to turn around uh, but that does not mean that big uh, ships do not turn around but uh, then you can still uh, have speed, uh, with, with a cruising speed on a big ship as well. But coming now to, to, to the Estonian perspective, uh, uh, the one point that I would, I would like to make is uh, that you should not perhaps look at uh, so much on digitalization of, of, of a very narrow segment of the economy. You need to look at the digitalization of the whole society and, and if you have some segment which is very well digitalized, but other, on the other hand, you have some registries or agencies which are not uh, digitalized at all, uh, so it's, it's, uh, you will not reap the full benefits from digitalization. You need to look at the digi- digitalization uh, on a very broad basis. Uh, and what Estonia has been doing, uh, uh, or what is the backbone of, of our e-society, digital society, it's it's an X road. Uh, we call it an X road. It puts together uh, a few uh, hundred different uh, uh, databases, uh, and uh, it makes possible uh, for those databases to speak with each other. So, uh, uh, and on that X road, there are around 2,000 different e-services have been built. Uh, so, e-banking. Uh, Uh, e-governance, e-elections, e-health, e-education, and so forth. Uh, So you need to look on a very broad basis at at the the digitalization of the society. Uh, Secondly, uh, our observations, what what makes uh, uh, digitalization successful, uh, I think, uh, uh, one one crucial issue is to build trust mm. to build trust in 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 society it's important uh, um, you uh, there are issues of privacy there are issues of cyber cyber uh, cyber security you need to tackle them uh, it, it is also that the the government must st- trust citizens, and the citizens must trust the government. If, if there is an issue that uh, the uh, digitalization is, is used, uh, or digital environment is used for patrolling, uh, uh, for, for uh, uh, spying, uh, then it's not gonna work. So it's, uh, and, and there are a number of other issues, which, for example, which we think are important, is the ownership of data. Uh, In our case, uh, uh, I am the owner of my data, it's it's my asset, so uh, principally if I want to, uh, I can determine whom I can reveal my data. If I change my family doctor, then I uh, reveal my data to this particular doctor, nobody else sees my my health record, and furthermore, it's, um, uh, it's all stored. I always have an access uh, to information if somebody has uh, accessed my my and looked into my data. So uh, these are these are uh, these are the, the elements um, which That's are I think important.
0: So you might need more data. You need more more observations of the observers to to generate that kind of trust. Great. Okay. And then um, finally, Michael. Um, I've got kind of another, you know, another question about kind of challenges, opportunities. Mm-hmm. Where do you fall on the negative, <coughs> positive spectrum?
7: Um, <clears throat> well, I think on the on the opportunity side, I think in the in the book we make this, this try make a distinction between doing what we do now better and doing different things that we don't think we can currently do. And I think Sanjeev gave lots of examples of the former of doing current things, the things we do now better. Um, some are. I mean, some of these are, all, of course, already happening. And I think quite a remarkable example is, uh, is exchange of information, which, again, Sanjeev mentioned, where now we're moving towards automatic exchange of information on taxpayers, which, you know, f- 10 years ago, we just simply think was technically impossible. So I, I think we are already – I share a lot of Patrick's reservations, and I'll come back to those in a moment, but I think we should recognize that a lot of these things are already with us and we can see some some clear, clear gains. How big they are um, – in the book, we have uh, one paper sort of estimates gains from in a more effective uh, public service delivery, about one point of GDP, 1% of GDP, which probably is not a revolution. So I think for the revolution, you move to the next topic of what can we do that we can't... Uh, c- what could we be able to do that we can't currently do? Um, Sanjeev mentioned lifetime income tax. I think linking data sets, not just as kind of audit triggers, but actually to use that information to determine tax liability, all kinds of possibilities. And I think in the book, we have a, a remark by... Um, one of the papers cites the CEO of IBM, who made a remark which I find myself thinking about quite a lot. Uh, She said that data is the new natural resource. And that's either very profound or going to prove meaningless. I think we're at the point where it's not quite clear to me. But I think that's a real analogy that we have to think through. And that does make you think, well, actually, maybe we're going to... think about taxism in a completely different way. And I think what Martin was saying about ownership of data, information, is going to be critical, including on the tax side. On the challenges, I think some are very well recognized. We know that large, lumpy IT projects have a pretty lousy record, all the you know sort of security issues. And I think the point as well, I think as a tax person, you're very conscious that the, the tax design is always one step behind we know that we're going to be one step behind the private sector that's not that's not going to change and I sometimes think we underestimate the bad actors out there in terms of security and you know illegal and legal things but I think other things from our point of view I think we will always stress the importance of getting IT itself doesn't solve anything Uh, it's all about getting processes and systems right Um, I think. Others will know more about it. I think the CarTex story in the UK is an example where we moved to paperless uh, vehicle registration fees and compliance went down because the pay- one of the bits of paper that we lost was the thing in the in the windscreen that made us all kind of auditors. That's nothing wrong with the technology. That's to do with saying you have to have a process, you have to have audit, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think sometimes, in a second-best world, I think sometimes you have to recognize more information is not necessarily better. Um... There was a very interesting paper on, on Ecuador uh, which was looking at the use of third-party reporting on company sales. And we tend to think third com- improved third-party reporting. We tend to think that's going to be great for compliance. But, of course, it turned out not to make much difference because you have third. But when companies revealed their sales, more honestly, they simply lied on their costs instead. So it did end up in the same place. I think Sanjeev mentioned this kind of nail casting um, using real-time fiscal data. One of the points the paper makes is that well actually you have that for cash, uh, you don't necessarily have that information so quickly for accruals, so you may end up focusing too much on the cash. And I think, finally, all these other constraints just don't go away. We've already men- mentioned political institutional constraints. Even on the tax side, if we improve compliance, say, with the income tax, one consequence of that is that worsens distortions associated with the income tax. So we have to think through what that means. It kind of takes me back a little bit to the, to the redesign quest. But o- overall, I think, and I did want to say, I think the book is um, – uh, is I think we're pretty cautious on, this, on where we think things are going to go, and maybe we'll talk about that more. But it's clearly going to be a plus. I mean, I think it, I'm not sufficiently laddite to say that the world's going to be a worse place.
0: So can I ask Ruth, Ruth Goodwin, um, who's the CEO of Better Than, the Better Than Cash Alliance,
8: to ask the first question? Thank you. Do, you need, do you need a microphone?
0: Oh, there you go
8: you, And I want to take up the point, uh, one comment and one question really briefly. My comment is on the arms race on digitization. It's always a very sexy term. And uh, Professor Simon Johnson at MIT also used that term. And he was saying, if we don't recognize that happen, that is happening, we're not going to be one step behind Michael, we're going to be... Way behind because it's happening really quickly. We're not going to be 10 years behind, Professor Dunleavy. We're going to be 20 years behind if we don't take action. And so I would like to, on my comment, to say we don't have an option to say, oh dear, you know, we're behind, you know, what are we going to do? Let's think about it. Our only option is to say, What is the action that we have to take as governments, the member states uh, that IMF works with? What is the action we're going to take so that we don't get left behind, so that we don't get completely circumvented in the tax uh, regime? So my question is, what is the call to action? What are we going to do? We can't just sit and say we're not going to do anything. We have to take action with our governments to be able to use the benefits of digitizing. India took action. They are saving $7 billion annually. They are using that to serve their citizens better. What is the action? Is it digital identification? Is it integrating PFM as we have great budget uh, people here with the digitization? What is it better TA? What is the call to action? Thank you. Question. Okay, so I'm going to take two more
0: questions and then we're going to answer them all together. Um, Or I could just take one and include a question from someone who is watching this remotely. Hello. Um, Anyone? Okay. Oh, yep.
4: Um, yeah, I, uh, I I would just like to ask about um, how, what would you what were your views about digital connectivity um, amongst all of this? Because um, obviously this is great, uh, great service from the government um, to increase digital digital inclusion from people. But what if people actually don't have digital access um, to fill in the tax reform or apply to health service? Wonderful. And then the oh, there's another there's
0: another. Yep.
4: Hi, Michelle from the University of Surrey. I'm just wondering from the panel what their thoughts are around the blockchain and uh you know the impacts of blockchain, especially in terms of uh developing countries. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. Okay. Um well shall we have a go at answering those three and then we'll take another round. Uh should we go from far right to do you well, want to start?
3: There's a lot of things that you can do in a very proactive way. So for example, uh, it's very important to pay people working in the digital parts of government and working in the digital state at a good rate. And that would be a very good way in which aid, money, and so forth could be you know, very productively employed. It, it's creating the capacity for an intelligent center state. Uh, and then ensuring that capacity over time. And that, so really, there's, there's no substitute for retaining that capacity in country and then paying people you know, who've got the skills that you need to stay in the public sector and not uh, migrate. And yet there, there are some really interesting projects that you could be doing in the public sector, and the, the real difficulty is how you organise to get that done, Uh, In the past, uh, big outsourcing um, system integrators have uh, taken a lot of uh, staff away from countries and away from government. Uh, Now they're in a little bit different thing because there's competition coming in from cloud, and cloud is much easier to organize and and do in-house work with than, than before. So I think there's some very, you know, very positive things. Some of the things that otherwise are unfortunate, like growth of Amazon and Google and, uh, you know, cloud-based uh, activities, which makes taxing more difficult, also makes it easier to set up quite good, you know, startup type tax efforts and, and so forth. So I think there's a lot you can do there. Um, on, I'll just say one other thing, which is blockchain is an example of a wider type of technological sh- change called distributed ledger technologies. Mm-hmm. It has some plus points uh, and it has some disadvantages. It's quite intensive in its administrative costings and and so forth. Um, One of the things about distributed ledger technologies is they do require virtually free storage that can get bigger and bigger and bigger every year for N number of years to infinity. Uh, So you've just got to bear in mind that there are certain difficulties with distributed ledger technologies. But the revolutionary potential of them is that you can move away from a system where there is one central ledger controlled by the state to a system where there are multiple copies of ledgers controlled by actors in civil society as well as in government and where a high degree of consensus is needed before you change the ledger so that could be a positive thing in terms of state <coughs> development in industrializing countries
0: and before, I, before I allow you to go on, so I, there was actually the, the question from from the internet um, was specifically directed towards you, um, and, it, and it was to ask whether you could be a bit more specifically pessimistic. Uh, um, as digital innovation surely works sometimes, uh, like when it allows administrations to automate boring stuff, so what kinds of digital changes are really difficult to do, even in the OECD? And that's from Philip Krauser.
3: Well, take for example the current real-time information system in in, uh, which HMRC is rolling out, which gives, for the first time, information on you know uh, how much you're being paid during the year. Whereas before, the previous way of collecting information was to your employer would pay you during the year; they would say your salary was so and so. Um, Actually, the it, tax authorities didn't know until 18 months after you were paid, in some cases, when your employer filled in a special return. And so now all of that's being done as if, as it should have been done basically 18 years ago. But it's taken 18 years to get there, and it's cost a small fortune to do. Uh, and wherever you have already developed systems uh, that are operating, paper systems or uh, digital systems, It's costly to move them on.
0: Great. Claire, could you talk about um, the the arms race? You're you're Mm -hmm. involved in one part of that arms race. Um.
4: So I would um, comment that the, the private sector, whilst obviously some some players in the private sector are very far ahead in terms of being digital and their whole businesses are are totally digital. There are still large swathes of the private sector who are still also on a journey into the digital world, um, particularly within, you know, the finance functions and and tax functions specifically. um, And a lot of the A lot of the impetus to the tax functions is coming from governments and governments asking for digital submissions of of data. So if you think about all the transparency initiatives that we've had via BEPS and some of the um, the FATCA and the common reporting standard type uh, regulatory changes, they're really forcing the private sector to really look at how they deal with the data that they have, how they get it ready to be able to submit to the authorities and really having to dedicate a lot of time and a lot of resources themselves to being ready and you know able to, to submit the information that's required. So definitely they're on a journey as well. Um, Again, different speeds, different focuses, different countries going at different speeds as well. Um, but uh, as big a challenge for the for the private sector, I think at the moment.
0: Sam, could you talk about um, the the concern about people being essentially excluded digitally, and when it comes to to all of this?
5: Yeah, I will. I mean, I'm one of the things that I've been doing some work in Rwanda. Rwanda's ambition is to have all government online services online by 2024 you can make your own judgment about how realistic you think that may be. But two things just to say. I think one of the things that we could help or from a donor in terms of is there is an issue about increasing connectivity and how maybe I'm thinking more in a developing country context where the donors could support that. Um, Vodafone in Tanzania when I worked there had 90% coverage, but for them to move from 90% to 100% probably need to be subsidized. I think that's one way in which the public sector could help. I suppose the other thing I would just... I'll come back to your specific question, Samir. The other thing I was going to say was in Martin's point about building trust and um, you know trust in government. Um, I think there's a there's a real issue about transparency, which has already been mentioned. I think more needs to be done on that. There's people in the room who are working specifically on transparency. I think that can be done. Just on the will people be excluded? My concern in in I suppose in Rwanda is the same as the concern for my father, who's ninety. Um, and will he be able to access things if everything becomes online? I think that's a real issue. I don't really have an answer to that. But I do worry about it, both personally and also I, I worry about the ambition of countries like Rwanda. Mm-hmm.
0: Do we have any calls? Calls? What's your response to the call for action?
6: Well, I 100% agree with Ruth that the uh, future is... is, is, is um, it's 100% digital not not analog uh, and uh what we need to to do is to cultivate the the culture of change uh, the culture of innovation uh, because uh, there are lots of rapid changes which which go on and but uh, you need to recognize that um, uh, that innovation is is of quite often uh there is the failure com- com- component present uh, and uh I want to say that uh, the public sector is, is uh, very often very severely uh, punished for failures, uh, and 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 this can 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 bring tra- drawbacks. Um. Uh, but l- if I may also y- respond to the question on, on blockchain, uh, the Estonian experience is uh, using the blockchain. We, we started to use it in, in 2012, and and uh, principally all log files uh, are are stored in our case uh, by by using this uh, this technology and and it's it's part of, of transparency and, and and it's 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 important
7: um <clears throat> well maybe to pick up on the on the, the first and last question on the call to action i think um a lot of this has to boil down to politics it seems to me it has to be politics at various levels i think um you know, one thing that biometric identifiers should let you do is make uh, is get rid of inefficient price subsidies. Um, but as Sanjeev says, there there is a political constituency behind um, inefficient price subsidies. So somehow there's a political um, uh, impediment to be overcome. But I think if you think about, say, what's happened as as we heard on the international tax side, both on the sort of exchange of information CRS side and and the kind of corporate tax side. That's really showing the power I think of people actually perceiving that um, you know the system for them isn't working and that created the political pressure that the politicians then go out and say, well actually we have to try and make this work and that's going to involve overcoming some technical obstacles um, And you know I think in some sense the international tax debate may be sort of where we're headed more generally in, in the sense that these kind of issues are coming up much much more rapidly I think on that side of on that side of things and for and the politics, is very much uh, is very much to the fore, and I think at some point, and uh, one of our Revenue Administration colleagues tells us, for example, that as people see benefits in neighbouring countries, as, a, as the English see what's going on in Scotland and so on, people do demand better services. So uh, the Revenue Administration colleague of ours says that well, people in his country now say, well, why isn't my why isn't my tax return pre-populated? You have all this information. You're asking me to give it to you again. Can't you just get your act together? And save me some trouble so I think that the politics ultimately has to be the answer to that nothing much to add on blockchain except again I think it you know I think um, the thought of kind of um, embedding spark smart contracts that implement tax rules is pretty exciting I think customs is the is the obvious initial way to go but again these come down to very fundamental things I mean if you have blockchain and you have everybody's in the system it's not clear for example that you need a VAT anymore you just charge final sales so all this comes do this come down to fairly fundamental issues in how we think about uh, the tax system, but:
0: wonderful. No. I think that brings us on to our next very, very distinct uh, section. so we'll, we're, having, we're going to have another round of Q and a, so don't worry. I will come to all questioners so in this in this next round, I'm going to ask the panel a few questions. Um, essentially about how the tax system should or will change um, in response to these things so so clearly with new technology you know the the um, the world is our oyster we can we can start thinking about things from scratch or maybe we can't because we have all these legacy systems um, but I would invite the panel to think big um, and and to think about what what we could do and what we should do and and so first um, so Claire how you've spoken about how um, how companies are, you know, essentially catching up, they're responding to requests from government. Um, If you could characterise how you think the system should change, how would you do that?
4: So, um, obviously, with the onset of all this data and information, um, from an administration perspective, once administrations have got to grips with how to deal with it, then really the next... Sort of uh, view is whether there's going to be the need for corporates and, and individuals to even file the tax return. So we're already thinking about some of the individuals and you know some of the countries, Estonia, Sweden, where you get already the the pre-populated tax return, um, and then really thinking about how that applies to the the private sector and the corporates. And you know, so much time at the moment is spent by corporates in complying and getting their global tax returns in on time, whether it's direct tax or indirect tax, sales taxes um, and then really the future we really think will be that this will not need to be done anymore if you look forward five, ten years um, so much more technology will be available corporates will need to have really understood their own systems, they'll be validating their data as they get it so real time transactional data um, so that they're then ready to have um, an exchange with the tax authorities around you know, the tax authority coming in and making the assessment. And really, that's the end of the compliance journey. So really, uh, big changes. I don't think they're going to be happening overnight for the reasons we've already talked about, but um, that's definitely <coughs> going to be the way of the future, and that will be a fundamental change. So,
2: I was
0: talking to someone who worked in intellectual, intellectual property um, yesterday, in fact, and he said that the one of the positive impacts of this um, tax break for patents is that suddenly every company became aware of the income stream that was related to their, their patents, right, so sometimes these tax changes can um, help companies find out more about themselves. Um, Patrick, do you have any hopes for efficiency gains in the UK, maybe putting aside real-time information, universal credit... <laughs>
3: I think the, the whole way in which tax systems has developed under particularly the tutelage of the OECD for the last 20 years has been very, very destructive. It's been developed towards corporately specified uh, knowledge, so that it's become more and more asymmetrical. And uh, we've had a, uh, a shift of co- companies really being able to avoid corporation tax through relatively simple but also relatively obvious Uh, kind of gross evasive tactics and I think that's fueling a lot of current political disaffection in in Western liberal countries that uh, many people feel that uh, life is very unfair if big corporates earn massive incomes and then don't pay tax on it and uh, what we're seeing now really is a kind of very large-scale movement by ordinary taxpayers uh, which responds to corporates not paying taxes. And this is, you can see this, for example, in the erosion of the income tax base in the UK. Massive numbers of people are moving their uh, affairs around so that they're not earning income, but they are generating wealth from assets. And uh, th- this is eroding the income tax base at a pretty remarkable rate and has completely transformed the housing market in—you know, and put it an into the thatcherite owner mm-hmm. of a pr- the dream of a property owning democracy. So what we really need is a kind of a a rethinking of tax systems that re-specifies robustness, simplicity, physical clarification. And actually I thought the suggestions in the speech of a lifetime income tax, and individualized VAT, that just makes me want to pull my hair out because that would just be, you know, lunacy. It would be madness, really. you could do some smart type things. So, for example, if you had traffic fines that were related to people's income or wealth, which I think is true in Norway or Finland, sorry, uh, that would be an interesting thing because then people see that this is, you know, a millionaire gets uh, fined 200 pounds, they, they can see that that's no disincentive. The millionaire fined, you know, 15,000 pounds, they can see people are being treated equally. And the fundamental thing you've got to remember about tax, especially in Western industrialized countries now, it's a quasi-voluntary thing. People pay tax so long as they think everybody else is paying tax. As soon as that <coughs> confidence or trust is destroyed or queried or undermined, the ad- adverse consequences for revenue collection are, are just terrible. Now, you can compensate by you know, doing real-time tax information. That speeds up. Uh, the proportion of tax that you can collect. But if the confidence and trust goes, the system will, will spiral quickly into a very fragile condition. That's my gloomy <coughs> view.
0: For optimism. Um, <clears throat> thank you. Um, so next, I actually want to ask Martin um, a question from, from uh, Anonymous, from the Internet. Um, so is, is... No, hang on. No, not from anonymous. From Abigail Hunt of the ODI. Uh, so, um, how did you secure the participation of Uber in fiscal revenue collection? And is this something you think can be rolled out to all gig economy platforms operating in Estonia? In
6: Estonia. Um, uh, cooperation with, with Uber. Uh, I. I think it it was it goes back a few few years time and and. Uh, uh, i i have been told uh, that when uber came to to estonia then we had already our our own similar company but uh, and and uh, then we we warmly welcomed uh, we warmly welcomed because estonia is is we are promoting us as a as a test bed for 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 uh, new technologies uh, and uh what happened we we the, our tax office uh, sat together with with them behind the same table, uh, and uh, they were to to work out some 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 solution for the taxation. Uh, principally, what is the important here is is a di- dialogue with with with, with, uh, with industry, because you you want to have uh, in the end a solution uh, uh, which does not put. Uh, very high administrative burden and and for that purpose you need to, to 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 work together engagement is is by engaging them you 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 principally bring people uh, or you will improve their tax obedience uh, that's uh, that's one one message uh, but on the other hand uh, government must also be innovative and, and uh, the way how we have responded to to new uh, digital uh, business models is is, is first uh, we we have uh, a new form of entrepreneurship um, because uh, uh, there are quite often the, there are services which uh, peop, per one person is providing to the other so there is uh, one new form of entrepreneurship uh, uh, where you are uh, you don't have any sort of reporting uh, duty to the government uh, you don't need to uh, to do any tax accounting and you will have from these revenues a flat rate so uh, uh, of 20% uh, and there is a limit upper limit on your annual income it's 25000 so this was our response, just to develop new form of of of, of, uh, of uh, uh, entrepreneurship, and uh, let me a little bit broaden broaden the issue. I think the innovation is is uh, is important on the public sector side. We, we always need to pay attention on on the cost side of collecting taxes um, and and. Uh, the, for for that purpose we, we, we have been working on, on uh, making our services as seamless as possible and uh, in this regard we are we are launching uh, next year uh, a new uh, new service for the corporations uh, which uh, which is called reporting 30 uh so somewhere in the middle uh, and after that principally for all small and medium sized corporations uh, uh, the tax uh, uh, tax collection becomes fully automatic no touch is needed uh, so but it means that the tax office has been given access to to all the corpor- all the data that the corporation has uh, so and i believe that this is this is one one, one way to go uh, so you you need to make the, the process of paying taxes very convenient and easy for corporations. Uh, and, and this is my answer, thank you. Great,
0: wonderful. Um, Michael, what does this all mean for the IMF policy towards developing countries?
7: Okay. Well, actually, I have to begin first by uh, throwing the lunacy charge back, I'm afraid, at, uh, at Patrick. I think if you think about um, – yes, the, 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 uh, you can you – can, I think you're right. It's Finland, I think, has the kind of um, penalties related to uh, the income of the person who causes damage because the rationale for these kind of penalties is a Pigovian rationale. It's the damage they cause that you correct for. So the, dam- so the, ch- the appropriate – the efficient charge – sorry to – let me be an economist. For me. The efficient charge is independent of the wealth of the person who causes the damage. It might – if you want to make it depend on the wealth of the person who's harmed – Yes. And if you want to tax high wealth people properly, don't do it when they happen to cause accidents. Just have a proper way of taxing them, which is what, we, which is what a lifetime tax – I'm not saying that's all you'd do. You'd have proper inheritance, estate tax and so on. That's what that would do. So I think I have to uh, send a lunacy back. I mean, is it, is it particularly sane to tax people on the income they happen to earn or manage to squeeze into the period that it takes the earth to go around the sun – that doesn't seem a particularly rational way of thinking about things, but and, and maybe there are, maybe you know, things appeal to people in ways we find hard to understand. But I think it's our responsibility to actually explain that there are, you know, that there are some basic economic forces at work that we shouldn't completely ignore. Um, but what was the question? Oh, for oh yeah, actually, I did not know really. Um, well, I mean, I think the book is largely about I think trying to inform our work with countries, and Sanjeev mentioned the work in Senegal and Uganda. Um, where we are proactively engaging with, with support of the Gates Foundation I think one thing that's quite interesting is I suspect that, that it's going to be quite different from some of the technical assistance we give traditionally, the kind of tradition of technical assistance, someone has the answers and they kind of fly in, deposit the answers and fly out again, I think just by the nature of the topic and the fact that it's changing so quickly it's going to be a much more collaborative exercise as we learn and, and that's I think actually a much more productive form of uh, engagement, there may, I'm sure terrible things will happen but nonetheless, I think that's a, a good way to go. Um, I think for us, it means we have to think about the skills we have within the fund. So, for example, in the Fiscal Affairs Department, where we are, we now have a little unit of f- four people to kind of who are, who are not economists. They're not really research assistants, but they're the sort of people who can help us with knowledge management and dissemination. And they actually understand what blockchain is. So, n- unlike me, they don't BS about it. They actually can do it and understand it. And I think that's kind of important for for the work we do it makes a work mark already for some of the analytical work that we do and I'm sure others do Um, for example many countries want to know what is the compliance gap what is the gap between the VAT I collect and what you know legally I should collect and we used to do that by kind of looking at national accounts and you know some survey data five years ago but now you say okay well give us your universe of VAT returns and we'll do it from on that basis so it's uh, moving along and I think it's important, I think, to mention, particularly for this audience, that there's a lot of very good academic work going on now on on these issues. I mean, not necessarily teaching lots of lessons that we didn't already know, to be honest. But nonetheless, I think there's uh, there's a lot to be learnt there. But I think probably the most our most fundamental most fundamental point for our work, I think, and for others, is that really. Um, technology never solved any problem in itself this is all to do with making sure that uh, within a wider reform process the processes and systems are in place that are aligned with with the technologies so i think we're a little bit i think we're a little bit cautious about the idea of leapfrogging for that kind of reason you know there are lots of countries that have great websites and stuff but actually behind it there's nothing there's kind of nothing nothing there so i think and that fits in with something sanjeev also mentioned that we and i think our other partners uh, in, in something called the Platform for Collaboration on Tax, and moving much more towards medium-term engagements with countries over four or six years, um, and I think this fits very nicely. But could, I, could I just go back very quickly to one of Patrick's points? Because I did agree with one, on, <laughs> there was one I agreed with somewhere, no, but it was uh, no. I think I mean uh, just uh, I think we're to, really to amplify your your remarks. I think about the international tax system basically being broken. I mean I think that's true, but I think actually the problem is deeper than that. I think it's deeper than than fixing avoidance by companies, I think it's it goes beyond really the topic of today. That uh, the deeper problem is is competition between governments. That it, in some sense, even if you fix avoidance, even if you make avoidance harder, that just gives governments more of an incentive to compete by cutting tax rates and offering perfectly good legal deals. So I think I mean I agree with uh, the the notion that you know this is a kind of um, Sharp end of the spear in terms of things in the current system that are, that aren't that aren't working well, but I do think that actually that's a problem. Problem that even even digitalisation is not going to solve is the way that governments interact with one another. Sorry, I was I sort of moved around. In a...
0: That's fine. That's fine. I, anything that promotes panel harmony <laughs> is is good. Um, and finally, Simon, what do you think donors should be doing
5: differently? Okay, I've got three challenges for donors. I know there are donors in the audience. I think. There's been a long-standing debate about use of country systems and making data available in the form that is is suitable. I think that far more could be done by donors than that. I know Rupert's in the audience from Publish What You Fund, but on the whole, donors just churn out information which countries find it difficult to use um, to make allocation of resources. They don't understand that data's in the wrong format. I think it's one challenge in terms of using country systems and making data available. I think promoting accessibility is really important. I think more could be done on that. And I think I would really like to see I was I think the book's actually interesting, particularly the latter chapters on Um, practical examples. I would really like to see donors tackling or helping governments tackle real challenges. One of the problems, for example, in education delivery is teacher absenteeism. It's not necessarily money not getting there, it's teacher absenteeism. Is there a role of technology in doing that? And can donors pick on some of these more difficult problems and really help? Maybe not quite the digitalisation point, but I think that's important. Wonderful. And now...
0: Uh, questions from the audience and again I have my super questioner hopefully lined up uh, no, who's no. looking very surprised so maybe I'll return to him after ask, asking a question from this gentleman over here hey,
9: my name is uh, from the International Budget Partnership I've got actually two quick questions the first one is about the fact that much of what has been talked about is about uh, efficiency and effectiveness in many ways sort of how things can function better, more smoothly and, and faster. Uh, and in our work, we worry about the impact on actual citizens and if, if information is power and if we're likely to sort of see uh, increasing amounts of information uh, being analyzed and then being shared and possibly being made publicly available, uh, what in the view of, of the panel uh, is the possible uh, uh, impact of digital revolutions in public finance in empowering ordinary citizens? That's question number one. Question number two is a crystal ball question. Uh, for you know, many of us grew up in a world where basically there was no internet, no cell phones, nothing like all of this stuff that we're talking about, and we know that not only change is happening fast, but it's happening faster every time. So, if we accept Moore's law, the kind of conversation that we're having today in ten years' time would be a hugely different kind of conversation, and a ten-year delay today would be like a hundred years delay. Uh, 10 years down the line. So the question is, uh, can, can you look into the crystal ball and tell us what kind of a conversation we might be having in 10 years' time around these same issues? Thanks.
0: I think this will have to be our final question. We don't have a question from the super-questioner or a comment. Yeah? Mm-hmm.
10: Okay, thank you. Uh, my, my comment is essentially on uh, <coughs> a drawing from the Ugandan experience uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, the opportunity uh, which digital, digital, digitalization presents, we have definitely seen, or oh, you know, seen benefits of, uh, for example, linking uh, the IFMS system and uh, our payroll management system, uh, both in terms of uh, uh, using the system to eliminate, you know, ghost workers, but also in terms of improving the efficiency with which people are actually paid, and you can actually, you know go down and monitor that and actually see the benefit, you know, which are accruing, you know, directly from, you know, implementing that uh, uh, linkage. Now, the the second opportunity we've seen uh, is something which we are trying to pilot and actually learning from the Kenyan example uh, in terms of uh, using uh, technology to uh, expedite the payment system, as part of the payment system. And this is specifically uh, using the mobile M-Pesa, you know, for paying uh, for traffic uh, fines. Uh, of course, a different issue from what has been discussed by the panelists. But in terms of, uh, it, it actually presents a very big opportunity because in terms of the speed with which, you know, the payments are, are made, but also in terms of eliminating you know, the leakage of resources. Uh, because uh, and, and saving even a, you know, uh, the, the the time of, uh, of, the, of the drivers themselves, the people who actually, you know, who are fined. Now, in the case of Uganda, what we actually found is that uh, over... 70% of the fines actually are not paid. Because essentially the system, how the system works is by issuing a paper, you know, uh, uh, a, a document uh, which you are expected to go first of all to either the police station and then of course eventually to go to the bank. Now the difference in Kenya is that uh, it is actually an instant mechanism. So when you are caught after, you know, committing a traffic offence, you know, you are fined there and then and you are actually given an opportunity to use m and and, and and effectively make the payment and the, in terms of uh, revenue to the state it has definitely you know uh, contributed uh, improved the system a lot now the, of course i also like the the the, the question of uh, simon actually hinted on this issue because uh, i think we need to explore the opportunity of digitalization in terms of uh, using it to for example monitor you know teacher attendance or the attendance of health workers in the health delivery system in, in you know in the health facilities to what extent can we actually use these systems, especially in countries like you know ours, uh, where most of the you know traditional monitoring systems have actually broken down? So how can we use digital systems or computerized systems, you know, to ensure that uh, services are being delivered, you know, to the population? Now, one more point on the challenges. They, they I think, one of the challenges which we are saying is, uh, I think also it has been hinted on. Actually, one challenge, of course, is. Uh, uh, the extent of connectivity uh, of these countries. Uh, many of the countries, of course, I mean, if you are talking of uh, services uh, reaching at the far end of uh, you know a particular rural or local government or whatever, uh, of course, the uh, extent of connectivity is limited. And then, of course, uh, there is also the challenge of cost. Uh, many of these systems are extremely expensive. Uh, we have seen it from the IFMSs and you know all these you know computerized systems; they are quite expensive. So there is a question of you know the cost of uh, the systems. But I think overall. Uh, there are definitely a lot of benefits, you know, accruing from these systems uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the issues of uh, efficiency and uh, helping to improve uh, the effectiveness of the delivery of the services. But at the end of the day, I think what matters is ensuring that the country context is put into account, you know, in implementing these uh, uh, systems. Thank you.
0: Uh, introduced. That's Kenneth Magamba, who is the Director of Budget in the Ugandan Ministry of Finance. Uh, uh, Wonderful. Do we have any more questions from the audience? I think this will be the final question. If so, yes, gentlemen. Digital revolution is a
6: quite big word, in particular, for public financial management. is quite difficult to achieve. And for me, one precondition for proper
1: Uh, public finance management is education, so I assume that education or proper education or uh, computer literacy is a
6: huge obstacle to achieve digital revolutions in a lot of countries, so how would you assess um, the costs or the possibilities of proper education for the Society in general, it's not about only uh, the public service system. It's also about civil society and the economy to deal with the digital revolutions or modern technologies.
0: Thank you. Wonderful. Okay, so I'm going to go around the panel one final time, and then at the end, I'm just going to warn them of this now. I'm going to ask you to give your your summary, your one-sentence summary of what your main takeaway from this has been. So prepare for that. To deliver that kind of punchy summary. Um, but first, um, shall we answer the questions? Uh, so, uh, Patrick, we had questions, uh, a crystal ball question. Um, we had a question about empowering citizens and the importance of education. Answer what you would like. Well,
3: I think, you know, probably we'll be here in 10 years' time having pretty much the same, well, you'll be here, but I probably won't, <laughs> uh, having pretty much the same discussion and lamenting the fact that actually change takes a lot longer to happen than we thought it would. But, um, you know, the uh, I can't remember who it was, or maybe it was, um, I can't remember who it was, He said change takes longer to happen uh, than you think it was, was, was possible, and then it happens faster uh, than you ever thought it could. So we've got to hope for that. But uh, I think it's, it's vital to be pretty realistic to think that technical change, digital, requires institutional change, it has to fit with, it, uh, with cultural context, as, as Kenneth was saying. And, and those sorts of things take a little bit more time to meld in than you, than you might think. So that would be my 10 years prediction. Sorry.
4: The 10 year prediction one. I don't know yet. Um, I'll think about that one. But in terms of the point about um, will all information be made available to everybody, will everything be open and uh, transparent? Um, I think that's very difficult. I don't think uh, anytime soon we'll be seeing that from a sort of a, an agreement or a policy perspective. Um, the risks and challenges around everything being available are obviously. And this comes then to the education point as well. What do you do with that information? How do you interpret it? What does it mean? Um, and so you know, for these reasons, I think things will still be governed by you know, a degree of confidentiality. And you know, the way that this would change um, probably isn't in, in the 10-year horizon either, I would suggest. Um, but education around interpreting the information which does become available, again, thinking back to transparency and other information exchanges is, is critical um, in, in how we sort of understand the information which we are allowed to see.
0: Thank you. Simon?
5: Just two quick, quick things. I mean, I asked myself the question, you know, will I, would I be comfortable for the state to know everything about me um, and i think the point that was made earlier about trust and the whole raft of other things in terms of confidence in the state's really important on the education one i'm less uh, i'm less worried about that uh, two things i would say is Children can operate smartphones and do lots of things and their education is a, is variable but I think what is incumbent on governments and others is to work harder to make the information as accessible and usable as possible and I think that is a responsibility for governments That, that therefore the education gap is, is, is smaller effectively. Mm-hmm. Martin. Uh,
6: on the question impact on, on citizens um, I think there is one area uh, it's, it's cyber security and, and, and privacy because people must feel thems- themselves uh, in the same way secure whether they are offline or online uh, so it's 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 the duty of the government that the, the people feel themselves safe in, in, in the cyber domain um, and uh, and that the information that you have uh, in digitalized that it, it's accurate uh, so it's 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 important to 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 work on this Uh, then on the question what what will be in in a 10 years time uh i believe that there is much more artificial uh, intelligence we see it uh it's spreading and and it it helps increasingly people to make their decisions Uh, so uh, this is what, what what i believe in and when it comes to to education then uh, absolutely you you uh, digital literacy is important uh, uh the education is important uh, determinant how people will go along with with digitalization and and how much attention do they pay on high, uh, uh cyber hygiene so it's it's a it's a must
0: and michael uh
7: i think not much to add to those comments i think on where we'll what we'll be saying in 10 years time i'm just sure we'll be embarrassed to look back at what we've said today (laughs) how much was naive and how we missed some completely obvious big trend um you know i think 10 years ago as i was saying we would we would have said automatic i would have said automatic exchange of information okay could we dream on but um I'm sure we've missed something, I'm sure we've missed something big. Um, I think on, on not much to add on, but I think one thing, I agree with Martin, one thing we haven't actually talked much about is sort of artificial intelligence and cognitive computing, and I think that is that is something that uh, we're only really even beginning to, to sense what that might mean. Um, education, again, I think is key. I think on education there's a bit of a circle here, I think, with the link with digitalization, and I would maybe just refer you to the chapter in the book that looks at... Um, actually the impact on digital methods, on um, kind of delivery of education services and effectiveness of education services, which is sort of another, the other half of the circle in a way, perhaps, but yeah.
0: Wonderful, and now as I warned the panelists, I would ask, I would love a one sentence summary of your main theme. Patrick, optimism. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, go forward, Com- Go forward, hopefully, but uh, recognise that you're in an arms race, and don't expect that you'll ever get to kind of a digital panacea.
10: If you see.
4: Okay, I'll go next. Um, I would say that you know the change is definitely coming. It's coming quite quickly, so um, embrace it. Be keen to learn about what is changing, um, and you know be quite agile in the thinking around how quickly things change and what you do about it.
5: Um, Institutions and politics matter and building trust is very important.
6: Uh, My last sentence would be pretty much uh, uh, the same message that the world is going to be 100% digital. So whether we want or not, uh, we need to ensure that this transition is is, going to be as smooth as possible and uh, build trust and don't be afraid of, of failures.
7: Uh, I have a few commas the, uh, <laughs> semi, even a semicolon <laughs> or two maybe. <laughs> uh, oh no, I think just distrust hype. Um, remember the getting the boring stuff right. is still important, but think big. Maybe. Not
0: too many commas.
7: Well, I'll throw a few more in if you like a
0: dash at the end. <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. Wonderful. So thank you. I think my main takeaway is that this is hugely exciting. We don't know what we don't know, um, and lots will change. And I will end on an anecdote, which is my very first job, was actually cleaning uh, data provided. Nas- it was national insurance records, and there was a very alarming moment in my research where I discovered that Half of the people in my data set, this, the national insurance system started in, um, after the Second World War, half of my data set seemed to be born in 1753, um, which was, was problematic and alarming. Um, and so you know, my call to action would be, when you collect this data, think about what it might be used for. <laughs> make sure you don't make everyone born in 1753 by accident. <laughs> Thank you.